Everybody Wants to Rule the World sings Tears for Fears in this week's 80s anthem. And it's true, isn't it? Every one of us has the ambition to be in charge. We want to be in control of our destiny. We want to be master of our lives. But we don't know what to do with our desire, this desire that is mentioned in the song we just heard. And it does quickly become remorse. So I think it's kind of a prayer that Tears for Fears offers up here when they sing, help me to decide, help me make the most of freedom and of pleasure. Nothing ever lasts forever. It's a sad song, really. It's a song about disappointment. What we want, we don't get. We are never satisfied. But what if there was a way we could break out of that cycle of desire and remorse? What if there was a power that didn't want to dominate and exploit others? What if there was a love that did last forever? Those are the kinds of questions we've been asking over the past 10 weeks as we've worked our way through the book of Genesis, its beginning part anyway. And today we come to the end of that opening section of Genesis, chapters 1 to 11. And as you know, we've been in the gym for most of those Sundays. By now, if you've been with us this fall, you've probably got the message that we as a congregation started here in this room. And that's my excuse for playing music I love from the 1980s, because we began here in 1980. But did you know this historical fact? Did you know that Courtright has gone through five locations in our under 40-year history? I'm cheating a bit because I'm including this second uh, revisiting of the gym as one of those locations. But I think that diversity of locales has shaped us as a church. Yes, of course, we value buildings. We want to be good stewards of what God has given us. And that's why we're renovating our sanctuary so we can welcome people more effectively. But we're also what you might call a nomadic church. It's in our DNA in a way. We're flexible. I hope we are. We're ready to move as the Holy Spirit sends us out on new adventures. Now, God's people have always run into trouble when they have refused to be sent out, when they have insisted on settling down, staying in one place, when they build in a way that cultivates their self-interest but moves them away from God's purposes. And today we're going to read a story like that in Genesis 11. But before we open our Bibles, let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you move us this morning as we look into your word? Move us away from self-preoccupation into a new openness to you, a new trust in you. Move us so that we are no longer turned in on ourselves, but so that we are looking where we need to look, so that we can see Jesus for who he truly is. Show us his grace and his truth, we pray. Amen. So we're going to read Genesis 11, 1 to 9. It'll be on the screen, but also... I'd like to encourage you to bring a Bible because the nice thing about having a Bible is you can look what's before and what's after. Sometimes preachers do this sneaky thing where they cut a passage off right before something really hard. 
You ever, you ever seen that happen? Yeah. I've never once done that, of course. But, but if you don't have your Bible, you don't know. Like, what if verse 10 said something crazy? You might say, now I know why you cut it off. But if you didn't bring a Bible, you can't call me on that, can you? So let's read Genesis 11, 1 to 9. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. How many of you are fluent in a second language? How about three? Anyone here speak three languages? Anyone speak four or more languages? I see a few hands. I can tell you one thing. If you're one of those people who put up your hand and you've experienced what it's like to try to learn a new language, especially if you've done that as an adult, it can be a pretty humbling experience. In my mid-twenties, I spent a year in Beijing, in China, studying Mandarin. I remember one time during a school break, a group of us who were friends had traveled to the far west of China to a city called Kashgar, and we, we ordered lunch in a restaurant. We ordered one of our favorite dishes, a simple dish of chicken and peppers and peanuts, and this is what they brought out. Yep, that's goat's head soup, folks. Yummy. I guess we got our tones wrong or something on that day. But my all-time favorite language story is when I was teaching English in Thailand. I took a year off after high school, and I'd studied Thai in Bangkok uh, before heading north to work at a school. But you know how they say a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, right? On one occasion, I was using my limited Thai to describe Canada to a group of school kids. In particular, I was talking about Canadian winters. So I talked about snow, naturally how we get snow up to three feet deep and have to shovel the snow and how children in Canada throw snow at each other and build forts made of snow. Sometimes they would even eat snow. Now that these kids, these Thai kids were giggling and eventually they were outright laughing and, and I knew my story wasn't that funny. So I, I turned to another teacher and asked her what was going on and she explained that I must have been confused because I had used the Thai word not for snow, but for vomit. (laughs) So yes, a whole generation of Thai children grew up with the impression that Canadians throw vomit at each other. (laughs) 
We talk about being image bearers, right? That was not a good day for Canada. (laughs) So languages can be confusing. And all of this confusion we face, and, and we face it as English speakers, as speaking the same language too, don't we? Like, How many times this past week did you misinterpret something? Did you misunderstand someone's intention and assume the wrong thing? Where does that lead us? To miscommunication, to conflict. All of that goes back to Genesis 11. According to scripture, the great variety of languages we have in the world today was God's response to one of humanity's most spectacular sinful moments. It took place early in recorded human history on the plains of Shinar, or what is today Iraq. It was the building of the Tower of Babel. And here's one artist's rendition of what it might have looked like. It was a kind of pyramid, a ziggurat, they call it. Now, on the surface, it doesn't seem that terrible, right? They just built a tower. But we're going to see how this gives us a glimpse into the root cause of sin, what makes sin sinful. And we've talked about how understanding sin, although sin is not a popular concept in our world, is essential for us to appreciate where the problems in our lives come from and how God is inviting us to turn to him for help. Have you ever wondered where sin comes from in your heart or why it has the kind of power over you it does? Why you can't just stop sinning even when you want to. Well, that's what this story is going to show you. If you've ever felt like your life was a disappointment in any way, in a relationship, in your job, in your schoolwork, in your retirement, I think you will find the beginning of an explanation here in Genesis 11. What God was doing at the Tower of Babel, he's doing in your life also. So in verse 4, we read that the people started to build a city with a tower that reached to the heavens so they could make a name for themselves instead of being scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, the problem wasn't that they were building a city. God is not against cities. We talk about this from time to time, right? The Bible begins in a garden, but it ends in a city. The problem was that this city, this tower, was to their own glory. And it was in contradiction of what God had sent them out to do. Three times they've been told, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth, most recently to Noah and his family in Genesis 9. But they wanted to stay together. They wanted to sit tight. They wanted to maximize their own power. And it's intriguing when it says that They were afraid of being scattered over the face of the whole earth. I think things had begun to unravel. They were aware of their own insecurity, how fragile their lives were. Now, the Bible has a name for this kind of ambition, building towers to our own glory. And it's called idolatry. You might not be putting up a tower. You might not feel like you're doing that, but Idolatry is at the core of how we turn away from God and how we try to build our lives independent of him. God always pushes his people to look outward, to multiply. He moves us towards sending and giving rather than collecting, protecting, gathering ourselves for our own benefit. 
That's what we tend to do. We tend to look inward and focus on building for our security and our glory. Now, these people who settled down on the plains of Shinar wanted three things. They wanted, first of all, a city. And then within that city, they wanted a tower that reached to the heavens. And they wanted a great name for themselves. Sin is always an attempt to find in something or someone else what you have lost in God. That's why it says that their tower reached up to the heavens. They were trying to get back to something they once had in God. They were going to call this tower Babel, which literally in the Babylonian language means the gate of God. So here's your first point. And don't worry, this is a two-point sermon. Sin sets out to build towers to heaven. In its very nature, sin does that. Uh, These people wanted security, significance, and greatness. There's nothing inherently wrong with that, but they look for those things in the wrong place. And I don't think people have changed that much. We still want those things. We want the security of a city, a place where we feel safe, a community to belong to. Isn't that why family is so important to us? Isn't that why it's so important when you're in high school or in university or college to find a group of friends, to feel like you belong? Why it's important to be accepted in your workplace, to be praised by your peers or by your boss? Or in another setting, to receive the encouragement, the blessing of your coach, of a mentor, the approval of your parents. We crave that kind of affirmation. So we want security. And I think most of all, we try to secure our lives by accumulating money. We protect ourselves from the threats we perceive in life by accumulating financial wealth. And then we want our lives to matter, too. We want significance. We're anxious to be successful in school, at work, in our careers, in our families, in relationship to others. And we want to be connected to greatness. That's why people name drop whenever they have the opportunity. You notice this about people? We all do it. If you meet someone famous or you get up close and you get a picture of that, what's the first thing you do? You put it on the Internet. Years ago, I remember seeing a Christian leader tweet this. Had lunch today with Eugene Peterson. Hashtag humbled by this. Now, if you don't know Eugene Peterson, probably one of the big names in Christianity in the last 50 years in North America, author of the message, paraphrase of the Bible. If you were really humbled by that, I might say to the person who tweeted that, maybe you wouldn't have tweeted it. Because I don't know about you, but I don't tweet out things that actually humble me. For example, skip my quiet time in Bible reading again today. Hashtag humbled by this. (laughs) Got mad and said some pretty nasty things to someone I'm supposed to love. Hashtag humbled by this. We don't put that on social media, but we are happy to post things that make us look good, make us look great. So security, significance, greatness, 
None of those things are wrong, but they become idols when we look for them apart from God. Do you know what it's like to be disappointed? I mean, to be really disappointed. Of course you do. It's one of the most basic human experiences. I remember how my life changed after I became a Christian in my mid-twenties. And when I realized that all of my disappointments, all of my frustration came down to the way I had been reaching out for God, and I didn't even know that that's what I'd been doing. Every desire you have points to God. The longing for intimacy and friendship or in romantic love. The longing to be at home, to have a perfect home or to surround ourselves with nice things, to be comfortable. The longing for a great story. The elusive search for something actually worth worth watching on Netflix. And switching to Disney Plus isn't going to help either. Trust me, I tried. Or the longing for beauty in nature, the longing for the ocean, the longing for the mountains, the longing for a vista, a view, the sky. As is often the case, C.S. Lewis puts it best. He writes in The Weight of Glory, the books or the music, those were his two big things, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images, are reflections of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshippers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. Don't you love that? And dumb idols doesn't mean stupid idols. It means idols that can't speak. We turn to these idols, things, people, for relationship, for ultimate satisfaction, but they cannot speak back to us. They cannot speak life into us, the life we so desperately need, the life we long for. Only God can speak that kind of life, as we saw at the beginning. It will change you if you realize that every tower you set out to build in your life is you trying to regain something God designed to give you in himself. So the first thing, sin sets out to build towers to heaven. Secondly, and simply, God responds by coming down. Now that's a play on words. This passage in the original Hebrew is astonishing in its wordplay and poetry and its structure. They are trying to build up, build this tower up to the heavens. And God says, let's go down, way down there, because that great tower is so tiny that I can't even make it out from up here. God condescends. But God is not laughing. In verse 6, we see that every form of evil is going to spring from this declaration 
of these people's greatness. Again, what they're looking for, security, significance, greatness, is not wrong. They were supposed to get them through depending on God, though. And now they want to do it for themselves, according to their own will, through their own strength, so that they get this name for themselves. Let us build a tower for the glory of our name. Sin's wickedness does not begin with the immorality of the act, right? We're focused on that. What's right? What's wrong? What did I do? But it's focused on the heart behind the act. That's the nature of sin. What's in your heart? Just for a moment, will you forget about how moral of a person you are, how spiritual you are, and ask whether in the core of your heart there is God's will or your will? Do you walk in pride? You can do good things in life. You can build towers and still be consumed by pride. To really get at what's going on in your heart, don't ask yourself how moral you are, whether you're a good person. Ask, whose will are you living by? Yours or God's? Whose strength do you try to meet each day with? Yours or God's? Whose glory are you really concerned about? Yours or God's? And as you reflect on those things, and I'd encourage you, if you're part of a small group, maybe those are some questions you could ask this coming week as you meet. Huge questions, basic questions, but also simple and so central if we want to grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. Central for us to ask in our prayer life, too. Maybe you're someone who journals. Those are questions you can come back to day after day after day as you examine your motives for things, as you live in the freedom of God's grace, each night committing yourself to him, asking for forgiveness and starting the new day, saying, to your glory, according to your will. So we see that God responds to the ambition, to the self-seeking of these people by coming down. And he comes down in a particular way. He comes down with judgment and with mercy. He could have just let them go on. He could have ignored them. But he doesn't. He frustrates their ambition in order to get their attention. It's not Advent yet, but we're hearing bells. Are we? Is anyone else? (laughs) God frustrates their ambition in order to wake them up to the truth of what they're doing. So is this judgment or is this mercy? Well, I think it's both. He's trying to let them taste early on the disappointment of their sin before they fully commit themselves to that path. Any judgment before the ultimate judgment is mercy. So let me ask you, where are the broken towers in your life? Where have you tasted disappointment? Maybe it's a recent disappointment, something you're struggling with right now. Or maybe it's the memory of something, a disappointment that haunts you. Was it a broken relationship? Often, that's what it is. Maybe you're struggling with that right now. An addiction you're right now in the throes of, or one, by God's grace, you've overcome. 
a humiliation or a failure of one kind or another. These are broken towers in our lives. And rather than just forgetting them, ignoring them, pretending they aren't there, trying to move on, here's a radical thought. What if you learn to think about the disappointments in your life, these broken towers, as monuments with a message? And the message is return to God. Return to his love. He is waiting for you with open arms. Any judgment before the ultimate judgment is mercy because it can wake you up spiritually before it is too late. Now, when you face the inevitable disappointment that comes from a broken tower, from an idol that lets you down, because that's what all idols do in the end, you'll have a choice. You can react one of four possible ways. First of all, you can blame the idol itself. You can assume that you just chose the wrong thing and resolve to make a better choice the next time. So if your marriage is a disappointment, then you could conclude that you must have married the wrong person and maybe it's time to move on. Secondly, you could blame yourself. I'm the problem. I didn't work hard enough. I'll do better next time. And so you resolve to try harder. You load up on self-help books for Christmas. And with every failure that ensues, you feel more like giving up. You are more desperate and more despairing. Thirdly, you can blame the world. You can lower your expectations across the board and become cynical. I think a huge number of people in our society have given in to that. That's their bottom line. You can get numb to everything and just waste the time you've been given. Or you can withdraw from the world entirely. Or fourthly, you can realize that you were created for another world. Again, C.S. Lewis puts it best. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You want to be safe? You want to belong? You want to have a home? You want to have beauty and significance to be connected to greatness? These things are all available in God. You want to be known, valued, and approved of? You are. And it's richer and deeper and lasts longer than love of any man or woman. Are you trying to be special to someone? You are to him. Are you trying to matter? You matter to him. The arms that you search for in romance are his arms. The security you work for in life is only found in his promise. And the fullness that you're longing for right now and reaching out for in all kinds of different ways, that fullness you will only experience in his presence. So God comes down and scatters them. But when God does that to these people and when he does that in our own lives, he does it in love. And that's why God ultimately deals with our idolatry, with our misplaced ambition by sending Jesus. Jesus, who in the final act of coming down in human history, arrives as God's 
ultimate extension of grace to all of us. But when Jesus comes down, he shows us the depths of God's love for us like never before. He presents himself in a certain way. He comes as the power in the universe. But when the mother of two of his disciples approach him about arranging for her sons to have the best positions in the church that Jesus is founding, the kingdom that he's about to inaugurate, how does he respond to her? He says, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus came down to show us the way that leads back to God. And then he went to the cross to give us hope. To give us hope in the wake of every disappointment we face in life. To cure us of our selfishness, to forgive our sins, and to open the way for us to eternal life. Do you have that hope in your life today? It's waiting for you. You have only to reach out to ask God for it. But God doesn't stop there. God rebuilds and redirects. We're going to see that next week in chapter 12 of Genesis as the rest of the book of Genesis opens up with Abraham, as God calls Abraham. But we are central to God's plan of rebuilding, redirecting, and restoring. We are God's new creation. So stand up with me for a second, everyone. And, and turn and face me. Maintain that position. Now you're looking at each other. And I want you to repeat after me. We are God's new creation. We are God's new creation. His beloved people. His beloved people. We have received the riches of his grace. We are made new in Christ. Come, Holy Spirit, come. You can sit down. The Holy Spirit arrives on the scene. The Holy Spirit is the one who enables the church to say what we just said with not only conviction, but with the power of God. In Acts 1, right before Pentecost, the disciples gathered around Jesus and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And what they meant by that is, hey, we've seen the resurrection. You're the real deal. You have so much power. We're waiting for you to take Rome out, take Caesar out. Give us what we've longed for all these years. And how does Jesus reply? He says, it's not for you to know 
It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father is set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And it'll be a different kind of power. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we see that God's plan is not for us as his people and as all of humanity to be divided, to be divided by language or in any other way. God calls us to the unity that only the Spirit can create out of our separateness. As you looked at each other in that moment, what did you see? A bunch of different people, people from all kinds of different backgrounds. It's only by the grace of the Holy Spirit that we are together in Christ, his church. And so he sends the church out beginning at Pentecost to witness to his truth and his grace. But this is a different kind of scattering. It's not the scattering of judgment that came upon those people building a tower in their own name, which was also a mercy. You get the point of the way that God sends out the church and scatters us when the Spirit enables these new followers of Jesus to speak all kinds of different languages in Acts 2. God sends us out as his church to undo what he did at Babel. This morning, we are the church gathered, but we are also the church that is scattered every day of the week, every hour of every day. Court right, this is what God is doing in the Bible. And he's what he, it's what he's doing today as well. And it is amazing. He has moved the church by the power of his spirit in every age. And he's driving it forward today. He is building his church. Would you let him do something amazing through you? He doesn't want perfect people. Maybe you got that idea in your head at some point. He only wants people who are available, who are open to his purposes, to his direction. There are one of two towers being built in your life right now. Maybe it's a tower to yourself. And that is a tower of inevitable disappointment. Or God is building you up as a stone in his tower of eternal significance. It's a strong refuge you can run into and be saved. So which tower are you building? Are you doing his will or your own will? Do you see what you have, the money you have, your possessions, as belonging to God or as belonging to you? Are you building your own kingdom or are you living out his mission in service to others? Are you involved in the local church? There's no way you are living out God's mission if you are not involved in the church. Are you directing all praise back up to God? Or are you most concerned with keeping it for yourself? Look, God may be trying to get your attention today. It may be that there's a tower of disappointment in your life right now. It might even be that you thought God was punishing you. Do you see that what he has done here in Genesis 11, but most of all in Jesus Christ, is mercy. In his mercy, he is showing you that sin disappoints so that you can learn that God is the only one who will satisfy in the end. So run to him today. Let us pray.
Dear God, you created us in your image. You made us creative. You gave us the desire to build. Forgive us for the ways that we choose to build our lives apart from you. Lord, as we sang earlier, we want to build our life upon your love, upon your truth, upon your word. And we want to be part of this new creation project you began at Pentecost. With every one of us here, I wish we could have played Twister or done a big human ziggurat in the gym. You are putting us together, each one of us, like stones into the new building, a temple to your glory, a building in which you reside. God, remind us of who we truly are today in Jesus Christ. Give us the hope that comes through living for him and not for ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.